Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. We are gripped by the power of consumerism, but it doesn't have to be that way, says Dr Eve Paul. In her new book, Buying God, published by SCM Press, she explores how we can wean ourselves off the material and onto the eternal. She's also written on the subject in the comment section of this week's Church Times. I spoke to Eve about the new book, which is available from the Church House Bookshop at a special offer price of fourteen ninety nine. Do check out the Church Times subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. And if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes as it helps people find us. So Eve, could we just start by talking about the book's theological approach? I mean, you are an academic theologian as well as, well as an economist. So um, you talk about worldview theology and etiquette theology. Could you say a bit about those? Well, this really started because I had um, I had a worry about theology, really. Um, I mean, you can never read all the theology there has ever been because there's 2,000 years worth of it, just a Christian theology without everything else and, and globally. Um, and so I was curious, I have a sort of tidy mind and I wanted to figure out if you could kind of categorise theology. And when I was doing my doctorate, there'd been a fashion at the time for what they call typologies, which is all kinds of people trying to say, well, theology is either this or that. You know, a bit like when you go into a zoo and you say, well, they're the big cats and they're the reptiles and, you know, therefore they're different. Um, so I kind of got my binoculars on and lurked around some bushes to try and see, well, when you're doing theology, what is it? Um, because actually then if we're going to do theology about things in the public square, like capitalism and consumerism, we kind of need to know what we're up against and what we're trying to do. And so the the first bit of my Buying God book tries to earth all this very kind of academic inquiry into something which says, well, when we're talking about God um, or we're trying to work out how we ought to talk about God, um, we're either talking to mates who also believe in God. So that's kind of church family. um, Or we're trying to talk to people who may not believe in the same God as us or may not believe in God at all. Um, sort of public square and we kind of need to use different registers when we're doing that Um, because if people don't share your worldview it's rather disrespectful to assume that they do Um, and you're not going to get very far if you do that so when I started playing around with those ideas about what do we do and where do you talk about consumerism in that I noticed there was actually a massive hole because we're brilliant at talking to other people who are God believers about what we believe and how we ought to believe And we're very good academically at spending a lot of time talking in theory about how we might talk to other people who don't believe uh, what we believe. Um, What Jeffrey Stout would call clearing our throat. We do a lot of clearing our throats. But actually speaking, actually speaking in the public square about how people ought to behave around consumerism is something that we're pretty silent about, actually, as a theological community and, and particularly as the church. And then when you start noticing what has happened in that kind of theological box, Um, you start noticing something really interesting about how theology changes and it changes from just being utterances and it starts being much more about actions. So Justin Welby's intervention about Wonga and all the work that churches do around food banks are really good examples of sort of enacted theology in the public square about these crucial issues. And it's it's what theos have called social liturgy. That's what they reckon it is. It's, it's us strutting our stuff and acting out our faith in the public square around these important issues. So that's really the theological underpinning, is to try and locate it and explain what we're trying to do when we indulge in these kinds of activities around our response to consumerism as a faith community. And is the book aimed in principally at the church? Or? 
It is, because I think the church has a vital, vital, vital role to play in this. I mean, I, I have a, a theory of change I've articulated in the book, which is very much based on salt and light. You don't need that many people behaving well consistently to turn a whole community. And actually, the church really gets this stuff. We really know that this is wrong where we've got to now. And we have it in our power to transform the world overnight if we vote our cash differently. So this is unashamedly a book squarely to the church. So come on, guys, what are we doing? We really we could really help here. Why don't we feel more confident, articulate more loudly our truth? Because it's what the world needs right now. And we could really do something special here for God. You mentioned in the book the church is a a significant investor, um, for instance, and, and, and I guess the number of Christ- people who self-identify as Christians are a significant number of consumers, so what they decide could make a real difference. Well, that's the thing. If you look at, I mean, just if you look at the Church of England, I mean, the church commissioners have got £8 billion in their portfolio. Um, PCCs um, and dioceses have got loads of money that they spend and choose how to spend locally. Individual Christians um, are spending money and deciding how to do that. Um, and then you've got the fact that one in four children are educated in a church and primary school. And we've got bishops in the House of Lords. We've got vicars in every parish. We've got incredible reach in terms of role modelling and using our position as the powers. We are a power in this country. We're a power and a principality. And that requires us to take that rather more seriously than I think we have in terms of how we role model to the rest of the world what our truth is. And you also talk in the book about you critique capitalism as it's often conceived. because you say a bit about the some of the components of capitalism that you think are questionable? I smelled a bit of a rat about this, particularly around something called agency theory, which is a very popular traditional economic view, which is that um, in sort of Marx terms, you have the owners and you have the workers. And the thing about the owners of capital is that um, agency theory would suggest that they can't really be sure that these workers are working in their interests. Um, So there's this thing called the agency problem where you need to sort of cajole, persuade and rather force your workers to be aligned with your objectives. Otherwise, they will invariably lie, cheat, steal, sky, you know, the rest of it. Um, And that has been enshrined in trade unionism, in HR policy, um, you know, the whole idea that we have to clock in and clock out and be scrutinised and all this kind of weird panopticon behaviour we have around um, workplaces. Um, And I just really thought that was very sub-Christian. I mean, you could argue if you're a really full-on original sin person that that's absolutely right but it's very Freudian and not something that really I don't think Jesus would approve of in terms of the way he views our potential as individuals Um, and then when I started looking at a whole load of other assumptions that um, sort of classical capitalism makes uh, around economic rules like competition and uh, limited liability and just price, you know, the, the market price being the just price and a whole load of other things like the invisible hand and all these kind of concepts which are sort of sacred cows to economists, they just seemed a bit rotten to me, these assumptions. that They've sort of become toxic and they've started being cancerous to the system. And uh, even though science has moved on, uh, economics in trying to be frightfully scientific has uh, constructed itself as rules of nature which are immutable, which is just not true. And it means that public policy is constantly trying to shore up something which is absolutely hold below the waterline and it is, is already shipwrecked and, and becoming hugely dangerous to the whole world, as we've seen through various crashes. Um, so I wrote a book called Capitalism's Toxic Assumptions, um, which is reprised in the Buy and God book, which is really trying to unpick where Adam Smith was right in terms of the assumptions he made in 18th century Europe, but where over time 
those assumptions are well past the sell-by date and healthier ways we could construct what you do in the marketplace, which is about what signals you send into the marketplace in terms of supply and demand and how, therefore, you can create economy that we deserve and that is in God's image and not mammon's. And um, there are secular economists who are, who are making these arguments. I've read that donut economics. Kate Raworth, she's fantastic and brilliant. And it's been so inspiring because there have been loads of books over the last five, ten years which have squarely started arguing um, for whether competition is wrong or whether the um, uh, Kate's idea about the donut is to say we, we've just sort of missed externalities and the impact on the world and our embeddedness in this sort of small amount of modelling that economists have done. And, and that's a massive blind spot that we can feel already in terms of our, our, our using up the planet. Um, so there's lots of us arguing the same thing. Um, I suppose where I'm unusual is I'm a theologian making that argument. Um, but But it's very heartening that actually there are very few actual economists that believe classical economics anymore it's just that unfortunately it's still what's taught in a levels that everyone's getting results about at the moment um, on uh, mbas uh, in universities and therefore public policy all these people who've done pp at oxford they're still trotting out this tired old stuff and it means that we're just getting it wrong consistently in the way we regulate in this country and elsewhere and you think this is an opportunity for Christians? I mean, you're right, the fact the system is just a massive complex of relationships and transactions is a huge opportunity for Christians. I think that's absolutely right. I'm very motivated by the story of Naaman and um, Elijah refusing to go out, um, or was it Elisha, um, to, to heal him and uh, him, not, him not getting this whole idea that he could just jump in the Jordan and, and leprosy would go. Um, he expected a kind of massive circus. He brought all his clobber with him and he expected this massive kind of magician to come out and incant things and wrath of God or, you know, something. And I think we sort of get so stuck where we are. We think the only thing that, that can possibly fix this is something absolutely mega and um, that we'd all really notice. But when you look at the way markets work, it is just boring, routine stuff about me buying or not buying, you selling or not selling, um, prices being attractive or not. Of course, you can change things with regulation, but actually consumer behaviour drives change much faster than regulation does because it's always late and rather heavy and often misplaced. So actually, as we've seen with fair trade, which was something that basically the Christians delivered pretty much on their own, which is now entirely mainstream, um, you can just choose. You can just choose how you are going to conduct yourself in terms of your personal consumption, and that will start rubbing off on other people, and then it will have a massive effect, a snowball effect on the whole global economy. You're right. If capitalism is the context, consumerism is its daily routine. Um, what, what, um, you say, what do we mean by consumerism? I mean, it's a term we hear a lot, but how, how do you define it? Well, consumerism, again, is probably a maligned word, um, but it tends to mean our addiction to buying stuff. And we are egged on by phenomenally exquisite and very elaborate advertising and marketing campaigns. And now these are delivered right in front of our faces by our smartphones, pinging and sending us customised information and all this kind of stuff. So it's an incredibly elaborate machine, which is designed to make us feel that we need to keep consuming, otherwise we don't really exist. We don't really matter and we're not important. So I think capitalism is, is the sort of um, hardwiring, the kind of rules behind it. Consumerism is the daily routine. And the thing that accelerates the whole thing um, really is, is a smartphone. And of course, you mentioned Naomi Klein's but no logo, which I guess was pre the smartphone. That, that high. So the things have gotten much worse since then, but perhaps because of the smartphone and the Internet. Yes, I think I think we've sort of gone into overdrive because I think Naomi Klein was one of the people that first noticed that every single inch of public space is now advertised on. 
you know, even people selling off their body parts to be tattooed. But I think now what we see through um, just the interface you produce on the smartphone is just the volume and frequency of messages we get has just ramped up exponentially. Um, so we are battered by um, positive or negative reinforcement every time we make a decision um, about consumption or anything else like that. Right, and so the I mean, the marketeers, the advertisers must be enjoying this because it's making people buy more stuff. Oh, absolutely fantastic. I mean, it is just extraordinary and, and hugely impressive. I think my argument from, from a theological point of view is it's, it's just it's a lie. Um, I think all these promises that were made are about you will be perfect if only you just buy this one thing. But then as soon as you bought it, it's become obsolete um, and they've produced another one, a new one. <laughs> and you have to buy that too. And then then you'll be perfect. And, and we, we get on this sort of escalator um, hamster wheel, really. Uh, and it never fulfills its promise. And, and this is the big lie behind consumerism is it cannot satisfy us. Um, and marketeers are not honest about that because it wouldn't be in their interest to be so. You quote Colin Campbell, the academic, he talks about the components of consumerism being insatiability, novelty and subjectivity. Oh, absolutely, because it needs to be something that makes me feel really special. And I'm, I'm very um, inspired by Peter Sedgwick's work on this, because he was one of the first theologians to argue that consumerism is all about self-identity. And it's about how do I become real and more me and more fulfilled? So the subjectivity is about that. And then there are, you're, you're obviously in relations, so you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. And we know there's quite a lot of complex body chemistry behind that. Um, which is uh, talked about a bit more in the book. So we constantly want to be better than other people. So it needs to be new, it needs to be novel, it needs to be something extraordinary. And then as soon as you've got it and other people have got it, it's no longer new because you've already bought it and it's no longer ahead of other people because they've just bought it and matched you. So you end up getting this kind of arms race where you constantly have to keep going for newness, novelty, stuff that will appeal to you, stuff that you know, will make you feel ahead of, you know, leading the pack. Um, and again, that starts being this ratchet on consumerism to make us entirely addicted to just spending all the time. You're right, the religions have failed to provide a stronger competing narrative to consumerism. I mean, what could that competing narrative look like? I just feel we've kind of lost our voice. I, I think particularly in this country, because we're so obsessed with being a, a dwindling church and panicking about bums on seats and how we're going to finance it in the future and be, being so worried about mission in that narrow kind of membership sense. We've forgotten that we have this extraordinary good news, which is that you're already loved, you're already saved. You do not need Nike trainers and frozen headband to be acceptable. You are already acceptable to God. You are special. Um, and maybe we just don't model that very well in our communities because we spend a lot of time telling people that we don't like them and we don't want them involved and we don't approve of how they've made their choices. Um, and we don't always behave very well as a church either on that front. Um, but our narrative is that you have nothing to fear from death. You have nothing to fear from not being loved because you are fundamentally holy and permanently loved. Um, and actually, we have a huge amount of resource, liturgy, prayer, discipline that can make us understand self-identity in a very different way. And it's this lovely idea that Rowan Williams has about about grace and about we need to just grow up and not and not try and think that desire ends, that we can defeat it by buying more stuff. And there's an end sometime. It's noticing that God gave us desire. It is our destiny to desire God. But it's not mammon's vocation for us. It's God's vocation for us. So we've just been looking in the wrong direction. And it's how do we help people by role modelling it ourselves, which is rather crucial, to just wean their gaze off stuff and back towards God. 
and you write in your Church Times piece this week, you do not need to fight consumerism or hide from it. You just need to see it aright as a false promise, which is not good enough for you. I guess that requires a change of mindset, and, and I guess spiritual routines and practices can help with that too. Absolutely right. And it's about taking a deep breath out and just thinking, this is not my destiny. I'm better than this. God has chosen me to be more special than this. Of course, we will all consume, but it's about not being distracted by that and being able to see through it and being able to understand how it fits into your self-identity rather than it being confused with your self-identity. I can just ask a bit about the some of the very practical tips that you give in the book for how you can audit your health as a consumer. Yeah, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about books that just bang on about, you know, change your mind and you'll be fine. Because I think most of us would like to change our minds, but we, we've got a lot of habits that we need to get out of the way first. So I made sure that at the back of the book, I put in a lot of very practical stuff about, well, how would you start scaffolding your way out of this trap that we've all been uh, kind of inured into by, by consumerism? So there's a consumer prayer. Um, there is a workout. So you can have a month of virtue, which is about trying to proactively develop virtue by seeking out opportunities to strut your stuff around mercy and trust and commitment and care and forgiveness and humility, all these fundamental virtues that we kind of assume we've all got, but we don't necessarily plan to practice. Um, and again, there's a lot in the literature that suggests that the more supple these virtues are in our lives, the more we'll be able to deploy them um, at ease and reactively to any situation we're confronted with. Um, and then I also have a consumption audit, which is is noticing it's not just about how you consume money, which is one thing that we consume, but we also consume ourselves, um, our time and our talents, and we consume other people, our, our relationships with them. We use up their time, and are we doing that well and beautifully and in the right way? And we consume the planet. So it's trying to broaden out our perspective on consumption to make sure we're auditing everything that we use um, in order to make sure that we're doing that well. It's interesting when you talked about how we use our talents as well. Absolutely, because again, a lot of my drive in writing this was was because I do feel that if this is about how God has made us and what he wants for us and his ambition for us, then an awful lot of this is about how do we uncover, rediscover, hone and improve what our gifting is. Um, because again, we do tend to get sucked into something we've been rewarded for consistently and sort of pays the bills so you can keep doing it. Um, and, and that's a choice we can all, all make and some of us may not have very much choice about that. Uh, but it's also about noticing that there is something special in us too that we need to nurture, even if it's something we can only do in, in the gaps um, because of life circumstance and trying to really honour that as part of our giftedness and our, our specialness before God. Is, is it right the more we perhaps break free from consumer addiction that the less we'll need to perhaps work such long hours or in in jobs we we hate just to sort of pay credit card bills so that might actually free up time for the things we actually love i would agree with that i think a lot of us have made assumptions about what money we need to service a lifestyle which was pretty unsupportable there was some research done about um you know these sort of wonga type loans and 50% of them tend to be because something's gone wrong, like a car's broken or a washing machine or somebody's been off, off ill um, with a job that doesn't pay sick pay. So there is sort of 50% of need, which is driven by contingency. But the other 50%, people are taking out these loans for stuff. They want a new watch. They want new trainers. They want new stuff. And actually, I suspect their old stuff isn't broken, isn't damaged, isn't deficient. It, it's all about... The adverts that tell us we're rubbish if we don't have this new thing. Um, so, so it is a massive 
experiment, a, a social experiment in us trying to have enough a bit more um, because we're over-consuming like mad. There's so much waste. We know all the stuff on that. We just don't need as much in the shops. We don't need as much stuff in our houses. We don't need to spend as much as we do on stuff. And we could probably use that money more wisely in our lives. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.